0: On this episode, I had the good fortune to speak with Professor Asim Biswas, soil scientist within the Department of Environmental Science at the University of Guelph. Asim gives us an amazing picture of his early life growing up on a farm in India and shares his story of coming to Canada and continuing to pursue his passion for soil science. again very much and uh very excited to have you here today you know i really wanted to have you personally as a guest because i'm personally very interested in soils i find spatial variability very interesting Um, I thought the work that I saw that you were doing up in Northern Ontario to be very intriguing. So I just thought, hey, you know, there is a guy with a wealth of knowledge that's right in our backyard at the University of Guelph. And so then I got looking into your experience a little bit and I think I was even more intrigued by what I learned. Um, The fact that, you know, you grew up in West Bengal, India. Really began your life on a subsistence farm there, and uh, eventually moved up to graduate from university and then further your education in Canada. So I think just you've probably seen so much of the world, have worked in different parts of the world. So I think can give us some worldly experience on what you've seen done in different parts. So why don't we go back on um, maybe to your childhood, and I would love to personally just hear a bit about your upbringing on a subsistence farm in India and what that was like.
1: No, oh, definitely. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me uh, here today and talking to me. Of course, Northern Ontario mentioned and recently one of the fraction of the project, but me as a soil scientist, I should say that all my degree or throughout my life of higher education, like undergrad, master's and PhD, I did all three degrees in soil. And sometimes I use a slide in my presentation to like more of a general presentation there. Uh, I always show a funny picture and showing did I soil myself, (laughs) like studying all my life as a soil science. Uh, But uh, truth speaking, I feel lucky and privileged to be, uh, to study soil science throughout my life. And I I cannot be more than happy and more than satisfied about that because I always see is I converted my passion into profession and that drive me who I am today and what I do. Uh, So growing up, um, my origin is from West Bengal, India, as you mentioned, uh, one of the very small village uh, named Ashan Nagar and Jhautala, Puragacha. This is a couple of the small cluster of villages and what happened, Though West Bengal, in general, more than seventy percent of our population is agriculture dependent, but I think this village is growing up in a village, and it was is almost everybody is agriculture dependent. So, and majority of the cases is subsistence farming, and I'm talking about like my growing up uh, in. 90s and that time, I have seen majority of the family, very few family from our village who had a job. Like job means either going into uh, Indian Army or Navy or something like that. And a younger generation, few people had some government job, but majority of the people, probably I would say 80 to 90 percent of folks or families were associated with agriculture. So my family was not different either. So uh, my family, my dad was associated with the agriculture, Department of Agriculture, Government of West Bengal, but he was a field staff. He was an extension specialist. Okay. Uh, so it's always there is a motivation to there. Um, my dad position was that is called Krishi Produkti Shohayok. So that means is agricultural technology helper, something like that. Uh, but what it does, the jaw his role was there as an as in field staff, whatever going on into the government agency or if there is a plan from the government. So here's that extension person, bring that plan to the uh farmers, talk to the farmers if they have a problem with their crops, whether there's a fertilizer requirement, pesticide requirement, or something like that, he would consult with them. Uh, but also if there is any subsidy programs coming from the government buying a sprayer or buying a paddy thresher or some kind of technology when it is coming back. So he was the person communicating, like he was, he was always working with the grassroots level. And that was definitely a motivation to later part study agriculture. And he always wanted, uh, um, I'm one of the four sons and uh study agriculture that side. But me as a kid growing up in that family, though his job was there is a field stuff. There was no office time. He could go anytime in you know, the work. Uh, but for me, majority of the time he also spent in 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 producing crops and producing crops to mainly support the families we had about uh i'm talking about 90s that time we had about half a hectare to three-quarter of a hectare land uh, which is i would say is quite affluence mm-hmm. uh, in that situation three-quarter of a hectare is is a big land and, yeah. uh, so in, in our family in our, in our family, we used to grow a lot of different kind of crops. The couple of major things. why I call it subsistence in there because we used to grow paddy. So rice is a staple food for our region. So we eat rice every day uh, almost two times or three times a day. So rice, we always grow the paddy or rice. And that means that support our carbohydrate need, mm-hmm. I could say. And in the wintertime, we often grow wheat too. So basically for flour and bread. And in India, we do not eat the traditional bread. We eat Indian bread called roti or naan or different kind of things. Okay. So wheat is that portion. Then we used to grow some. Uh, so every cooking needs oil. So we used to grow our either different kind of different years. Sometimes we will grow most of the year we will grow mustard because mustard oil is the most common oil used in uh, Bengali cooking or Indian cooking. Okay. Or at least in my region cooking. So we'll grow mustard. Sometime we'll grow like sesame oil or linseed or rapeseed or something like that. It's a little bit of different in an alternate year. We don't grow much of a, um, a peanut and other things in that part of the region. So my the location I'm in is uh, Ganges is one of the largest rivers and it's the lower gangetic alluvial plain We used to call it because it's kind of this alluvial material deposited river river drawn material soil deposited it's quite wealthy soil i would say and uh, the main reason is that uh, the river deposition and lot of river around that side is quite enriched soil so often it happened people just sow seeds and uh, go there to harvest because a lot of people cannot afford to buy fertilizer and other things though in 60s the green revolution happened in india a lot of that impact some of these remote villages where i'm talking about was not there and i remember in the very childhood like so far i remember i can i saw when the electricity connection came wow wow (laughs) electricity connection, uh, telephone, forget it until 2000 and then TV and all those things were there, those antenna TV long back. So in in those kind of remote area, uh, like the impact of Green Revolution did not reach much like two, three decades later, I would say after 1960s. Okay,
0: okay. Yeah, so it was very slow transition then.
1: Is a quite a bit of delayed transition, because yeah. the Green Revolution had a quite a bit of impact yeah. in North uh, West India, where they have shifted to a large scale agriculture and all those things, but still uh, in the province of West Bengal or state of West Bengal, we call it uh, is still subsistence farming, not you don't find any of the large scale agriculture. Majority of the uh, subsistence farming, like our family, and some other family might be uh, having a more land. But a lot of times, they actually take help from the daily laborers who could come as agricultural laborers to work for their land. As
0: Interesting. In- yeah, it's incredible to think. You know, roughly seventy percent of the people living in that area at that time had a real hand in food production, whereas. Um, you know, it's, it's so very different than what we would grow up with here, right, where it's, you know, one or two percent. So that's incredible. Looking at India as a whole now, and <laughs> I'm not expecting you to give me an actual percentage, but, you know, just looking at it as a whole, what would you say roughly um, you would see there for subsistence farming versus the large scale, you know, more modern farms that we would think of today?
1: uh in terms of the area coverage might be uh proportionally a little bit proportionally a little bit high in the sense the number is probably a little bit of higher because Mm -hmm. it's the total area coverage Uh, but still i would say uh, if if it is a total 70 percent of indian population and agriculture dependent uh in that case probably i would say uh like major portion. It could be eighty-five to or eighty to ninety percent of that seventy percent is still the subsistence farming. Very few agricultural area region uh go for a like a large scale production. Wow. There's a quite bit of movement done earlier, uh, so cooperative agriculture. So what happened in Indian land holding situation, the farmers or the owners, so they basically own the land. And sometimes they try to form a cooperative organization where they can everybody pull their land together and try to do a one type of crop because uh, it just so much of diversity of the crop, so much of everybody's looking at their own land because uh, taking care of the land is a very critical in that situation. Uh, because that's their bread and butter. So Mm -hmm. if if something happens to the land, one year of the crop loss, probably that family will go on a debt and often a lot of things happen in that situation. So people try to pull together, but still never been into that commercialized agriculture. Certain part of India, like uh, Northwest, but mainly since the Green Revolution, large scale commercial or industrial production started but majority of the cases still subsistence farming. That's why uh, like is to support the crop. So it's not only to support the family, but there is a different family model. So if I can give you an example of a substantial farming model of my family, then you can see why people are still holding on to that land and doing the subsistence farming sure. Just mentioning, uh, like paddy or rice or wheat will grow for uh, carbohydrate need, so mustard, linseed, sesame will grow for oil need. We often grow pulses because sometimes uh, the family situation are rich enough to take a lot of protein sources and a lot of people are vegetarian too, rather than go for an animal-based protein, they go for a uh, plant-based protein like uh, lentils, peas, uh, chickpeas or different kind of peas growing or pulses so we'll grow that so in india we call it as a dal dal source is a protein source for us and then sometime we'll grow smaller vegetable in the backyard of a farm like in our household or sometime we want to sell the vegetable because it's kind of a uh, uh, high value crop often because you can, but the problem is there's a lot more maintenance too right you is difficulty from there you grow every day the crops are growing you harvest that and go to the market to sell it every morning it's a quite difficult situation not like here your product is sold and mechanized and all those things we're doing but along with that to support the family need and then we'll have a chicken or ducks for the eggs cows for the milk, goat for some kind of the money-making situation or a cash sometimes we also use it as a meat and Buffalo we used to have for uh, plowing the land or bullock cards. So basically bringing the crops back to the back from farm to the land. In addition to the crops we used to grow uh, called jute. I don't know if you know this is a fibrous crop jute and West Bengal is a major portion of jute growing and it's called the golden fiber. So okay. what happened, this is a fiber crop. It grows about six feet, eight feet tall, one single stick, and then you can strip out the bark. So after you cut the jute, you put it into uh, water for rotting, and then that's how you take the bark out. And that bark, based on the water you use, is almost shined like a golden fiber. Oh, wow. Name is golden fiber. Uh, but jute industry in Bengal has suffering a lot with a lot of plastic development and other things so but originally jute crop was the major crop like cash making. So in my family also same thing we used to grow jute and jute we used to come out about September October time and October we used to have the biggest festival in West Bengal Okay, so this is kind of our uh, time was there. We harvest jute and ha- jute was a cash crop. So we harvest jute, sell the jute because we cannot use much of it. Uh, we sell jute and the money we get, either we get the new clothings and new things for the biggest festival. Also, we pay off any of the debt from the fertilizer shop and pesticide shop and other things.
0: Great.
1: So you see rice, oil seed, pulses and other thing to support your family. But Jude was kind of a cash making. So it's a model is a little bit of different. And I don't know if anybody thought it through how they're developing it. But as an agriculture and I try to see a lot more different viewpoints and I find fascinating model, how they pull together, how the economic management of a sustainable farm could work, mm-hmm. but also in terms of sustaining the farm and their need. And then you have chicken ducks and other things to support the other need of the family. It's a different model, yeah.
0: It definitely is, but it sounds like um, it could really bring a community together with everybody really going through, you know, the same day-to-day processes, the same goals in mind for their families. And then at the end of the season, celebrating with a festival like that, like it's very interesting.
1: I'll give you one example how the community used to get involved. Like as a kid, what we have seen, if my family has rice harvesting time, so what will happen? People will get together, five, six family who have the worker who contribute to the day. So five or six family will come to harvest, help harvest one person, and generally uh, this is kind of a festival thing. And I don't know how in the social system it. Falls in. But I found it fascinating in the sense is kind of pull together labor. They support one family harvesting that night. Generally, we used to have food on that family. And the next family, all that group goes to next person to harvest. And it's kind of a feasting their family on that day. So it, it goes on like that. It's like undefined cooperative system or something like that, where you pull together the labors and, and support each other.
0: That
1: is it's, nice. I love it. <laughs> good uh, but I think system has changed uh, quite a bit now because a little bit of agriculture, a little bit of mechanization came, but small scale uh, machines and other things. Yeah. Uh, but I'm talking about 90s and it was uh, quite a different experience in growing up at that of the farm and then choosing agriculture to be the major subject of study. For uh, sure.
0: And then... I mean, it must have been such an incredible eye opener for you to then move to Western Canada. Um, I read that you pursued your PhD there at the University of Saskatchewan. So, moving from an area you know where you might have half a hectare to you know massive ten thousand acre farms in Western Canada. <laughs> so, tell me what um, what that culture shock was like for you and what your first thoughts were when you came to Western Canada.
1: Oh, this was like I would say all different kind of shock you can define it. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, studying agriculture, so as growing up that farm, I wanted to study agriculture because that's what I wanted to be a farmer, but an informed farmer so that I can still grow crops, but got more and more interest into agriculture study, then I study undergraduate agriculture, and then I took a soil science as a specialization because it fascinates me in the sense uh, how you put a seed and it grow a crop or a plant. So what is there that could support you? Like it's kind of a magic things for you.
0: For sure.
1: And then I study agriculture, took soil science, I did my masters, but then uh, when I was doing my masters in terms of the facility and other things, um, it, it brought me forward probably uh, with the newer generation, newer study material, newer techniques and other things. I was looking for a PhD position out in North America. Um, the Saskatchewan position, when it came up, my supervisor said, yeah, you can join. And this is this is the project we are looking at. Um, I I was really fascinated and joined here. So the first shock, I would say, like when I was boarding plane in, in Calcutta on 29th of April 2007, uh, I was boarding plane with the 34 degree centigrade temperature outside with the feels like 4042 humid X. And then when I got down in Calgary, that day Calgary temperature was minus four or something like that about a midnight time. So it was a big shock for me. The first thing coming out of there, uh, a person never saw probably below six degree temperature unless right.
0: you
1: could, yeah. You know, <laughs> And then you coming there and, and growing up of course that environmental shop but as i start studying uh, my discipline soil science a particular soil physics with the soil spatial variability more of a mathematical quantification of that and i started to going out in the field and then i learned like how big of a land could be which is not is completely like i can't imagine in an indian system you can have a one quarter section one quarter <laughs> section is imagine how big of a land
0: yeah.
1: and then like it's shock how the agriculture work and that started to learn about I, I try to see go out to the farm or whenever I work I see how they are how they're managing the farm how they're growing the crop and then I always used to see in India like we get almost 300 sometimes a 400 percent cropping intensity so that means you grow three crop and sometimes four crops in there Because we we try to maximize the production and coming here is a one crop a year, still you do not get the full thing. So how the agriculture? It took me a little while to learn about the system, the things we grow, the things we grow here, and how we grow it. But it definitely changed the view and and probably uh, put me into a better situation. Uh, So how I grow up, what is my background in working in the very small farm and how we are doing is a mechanized farming, large scale commercial farming here. Uh, that puts me into a better situation as I go through my research program, I develop is this kind of that two minded situation I came through. It helped me to be who I am today. So that means any other research program I'm doing is kind of in my research program, there is a view from two point of view, like two side, so that I can I can do something I can contribute to the both dimension,
0: definitely. And what a fantastic place to do your PhD, really. Because like you said, it's it's two extremes. <laughs> even it's, even to come to Ontario first, it wouldn't have been as extreme to go to Saskatchewan. So that the, was uh, definitely a, a good fit. I'm sure in hindsight now.
1: Oh, definitely, it was an amazing experience coming from. Uh, a small little village in in calcutta or in west bengal and and then coming to a, a town saskatoon a city like saskatoon living there for four years as my phd and saskatchewan is one of the very strong universities contributing to the soil science too, soil science and agriculture in canadian agriculture because this is kind of a wheat bowl
0: mm-hmm.
1: and all these crops wheat and canola and other things we are growing out there it's learning two different things and as also as part of my PhD, when I came, one of the other things fascinated me. My supervisor said, "You know, as part of your PhD, you have to go to North Pole." <laughs> so <laughs> that's kind of blow me off, like, "Oh, I have to go to North Pole, then I'm in." <laughs> so that's kind that's of situation. Funny. I like that adventure. It's always being as yeah. I'm growing up. Uh, so I accepted that position, and I'm here, and then going there. But in terms of the difference, then when I was doing finishing up my PhD, one of the job opportunity came up from Australia. I said, okay, I'm done with North side of the world, then let me try to explore the South side of the world. Yeah. Going to Australia to do work with CSIRO, Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization. And then a professorship position came up in McGill. Uh, I came back because teaching was always, uh, always fascinating me and communicating with the student new mind. I like it's a lot more challenging minds and when they challenge you. It is kind of a rewarding to me that side. So training new generation, training this mind. So that's what I came back to McGill as a professor. And after a couple of years, three years of work, uh there's a position came up in Guelph They asked me to apply and then try to get into there. I applied for this position, then I got selected for the job. And
0: fantastic. I, fantastic. A,
1: quite quite as exact path. Uh, India to Northern Canada or uh, Central Canada where I see, sorry, I said Uh from Prairie, go all the way to Devon Island, uh, close to North Pole uh, to do research and then coming back and uh, go to Australia, s- Southern Hemisphere and then come back to again Montreal in East Coast to see a, a different kind of world.
0: No kidding. Well, I'm sure it's fantastic for all of your students to have such a wealth of knowledge to pull from and just for them to be able to learn from you too. And I always find you can really tell, you know, the professors or, you know, teachers in the past that have a real passion for teaching, you know, it always, it always shows off. So I think that that's very important. So what courses are you now teaching at the University of Guelph?
1: Uh, Right now, in the University of Guelph, I'm teaching one undergraduate course is groundwater. So, but this groundwater then people say, why the name is groundwater, you are a soil scientist. But this (laughs) is basically, it used to be a soil physics course, but with some connection. But this course mainly, I think better name could be soil hydrodynamics or something like that, because soil physics uh, scares people off, a lot of students resisted for that. Um, And not only this one, actually, as I came to uh, McGill before I started developing my own course, I actually did survey uh, of the people who is is teaching soil physics uh, around the world. And I tried to see what are the challenges they are facing in student registration. And so it's not the concept and the topic scare people off, but sometimes the physics name, a lot of students actually get scared of.
0: Yeah, probably would
1: have scared me. Yep. <laughs> so it's it's just the way we present. So basically, soil physics, that's why I, in McGill, I developed the environmental soil physics, more of in uh, physical concept application in soil or environmental studies. And then when I came to Goal, this course was taught as a, as a groundwater. This is nothing but how like what we see as a soil physical health, soil physical condition and how the water passes through soil and goes into the groundwater then start moving. So this course is mainly talking about once we get the rainfall, how it passes through soil and goes to the groundwater start moving and during the movement it can carry nutrient pollutant and other things. Uh, because Newton could pass it through the groundwater. So in this course, I really teach about the physical condition that promote or restrict this kind of movement of water and other things. And once it's going there, what are the properties of physical condition that could affect uh, groundwater movement? Uh, So this is an undergraduate course. In the graduate course I've been teaching last three years is uh, a required course for all the masters and PhD students uh research seminar in environmental science so basically this is more about how to do a better science communication okay Write a proposal how to present it well and like it's all about the science communication that course i'm doing uh, but another grad course i teach uh, is uh, field sampling strategies and geostatistics so that means as you mentioned about the spatial variability and that's kind of uh, one of the major contribution i did as a, as a phd student contribute on developing strengthening that particular discipline of spatial special variability quantification okay as i go through there there's always kind of my initial base and that's that's how i develop as a scientist in developing techniques and quantifying so variability at multiple scales and all uh, so in my course i is called the field sampling strategies and geostatistics so basically kind of when you're looking at a statistics and uh, like we're really looking at the statistical difference and other then we transform into geostatistics because spatial variability is is attached to a geolocation so now we're talking right. about geostatistics. statistics so how this varies in space and of course then we look at the time too so this course uh, mainly we talk about how do you sample from different area, what are the sampling strategies you can follow, and then how you utilize that information to develop the spatial variability information through geostatistical techniques.
0: Interesting. That's very interesting. So those being the courses that you're teaching, what about the research that you're working on at the moment?
1: So again, uh, I think Research is, of course, the main thing. And as a scientist, that's the most fulfilling thing. Of course, teaching is one, the fulfilling thing is one side. And as a part of my job responsibility also, we call it as a 40% of research, 40% teaching and 20% service. But I have seen a comic quite some time ago. Somebody draw something, say, you know, according to your professional offering, you have that 40% research, 40% teaching and and uh, 40 20 percent reached uh, service but often you ask a professor they say don't tell me how to do it it's just i do it <laughs> it's i i divide my portion when i do and often people are committed like i find myself often that i get committed over committed with things because i love so much about doing research it's all the new ideas every time i talk to students and uh, in discussing with the, like, I see how their eyes actually pops up with the new ideas, new concepts and other that. that puts me into a difficult situation too. So it comes up and we try to pro- uh, propose different projects and the project funding comes then when you need students to actually get those projects done. So in solving one question, we try to develop another five question, we face challenges and try to develop more projects. Uh, this is where like, as a teacher, as a researcher, as an educator, I find the fulfilling is that working with this new challenging mind, whether through teaching a class or being as a researcher and try to deal with some of the problem that we can contribute to science and society.
0: Great.
1: This it is it's a fulfilling for me. The type of research we do, I, uh, in my research program, I call it as a sustainable soil management, but in sustainable soil management, it's a lot more the way my research program is moving, we call it as a data driven information driven sustainable soil management. So people might say, well, what does it mean information driven? Um, I, I, I would define the way that if we really so in overall aspect that I want to see what are the challenges in this land based agriculture. So I try to make that develop strategies, develop recommendation in maintaining our soil sustainably for the future need. But at the same time, uh, I try to look for the changing climate, changing agricultural technologies, changing management practice or cultivation practices and economy. We want to put that one into an account in developing the sustainable management strategy. I work in a land-based agriculture, not uh, there's a lot of aquaculture. It could be a big, um, uh, but for my research program, land-based agriculture, uh, mainly working in that landscape scale, larger scale. I do research on a very micro scale, whether to a lab development versus uh, greenhouse studies, also field plot studies. But main target, I feel like, until I work on that scale where the management is possible or feasible from a farmers or a grower's perspective that could give me a lot more connection and in 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 seeing the problem and solving the problem
0: right
1: so in in doing that so we always say uh, so basically in developing the sustainable management strategy how we manage the soil to know something, you need that information. So better management requires better measurement or better information. And better information means how do you collect that information? You need to measure something. And as a student, as a as, a, as an academic, uh, I spend a lot of time standing in the lab and doing the analysis. So As I'm moving forward, one of this motivation was there. Can we try to develop something that could give us a very quick, fast and easy information rather than spending <laughs> months and days in the lab.
0: Great.
1: So it's kind of main target skill that developing the strategy to manage our soil sustainably for a long term or at the same time, stay in a business. I call it as a short term sustainability, stay in the business so that I can put food on my plate yep. and, and do something for the soil. Uh, so that we can return this land to our next generation in a better shape than we received. So this is kind of a long-term sustainability. You can simply desi- define it. Now in going forward, if we really want to understand that behavior of soil to make it a better, ma- better management strategy, so you need to understand how the soil is functioning, what is the capability of the soil. To know that unless you measure it, uh, you don't know. So that's what we need a better... Measurement to generate those information and better measurement. Traditionally, if we do it in a lab-based study, it takes a long time to get that much of information. Costly, time-consuming, um, and not environmental-friendly. Sometimes because of the chemical use. Right. So that's why in one of the focus I do, can we develop some of the alternate technologies? Like it could be a small sensor, it could be some of these easy handheld techniques or sensor that could help us to collect the data.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, in, so in going forward, this is how the one part of my research program, we try to develop some sensor mathematical algorithm or something so that we can measure soil properties very quickly, fast, cheaply, in situ or ex situ, like in the lab or in the field, uh, get that information. Once we get the information, I want to see where the soil are. This is where the spatial variability, my background is coming. How do I quantify the spatial variability? That means how soil properties vary from place to place. Now, once we know how the variations are going on, then in terms of developing management could help me, okay, this area soils are not performing well. There are some of the challenges there, how do I face that, that kind of going forward in type of developing prescription strategies. So when you go to a doctor doctor just don't give you all the all the tablets you need but they do some testing get some measurement done and based on that they do a recommendation of what medicine you take so in my view can you do something like that when you're looking at the soil we measure the soil properties and see what the challenges what the problems are there and then decide where to put something like that where to actually put a fertilizer so this is kind of a segue the sensor development uh, collection of data and then use the data to develop the spatial variability or soil maps once you understand once you develop the soil map, try to understand. What are the different factors or processes underlying that creating that variation so that variation we can identify spatial variability we can see it from the map. In third part, unless we want to understand, go back as a fundamental soil scientist, all my study in soil science, understanding soil process, soil factors or properties. So can we know what are the factors that are actually contributing that change, contributing that processes? Right. That helps me all this information, why I said information driven sustainable soil management, because this thing helps me to decide a more informed decision, to make a more informed decision.
0: Definitely. So when you are looking at different metrics, you know, um, what do you find to be some of the most important indicators? You know, are you looking at true soil types? Are you looking at organic matter? Um, Are there different metrics that you have found to be more important than others in helping to define spatial variability?
1: So definitely this is actually an important part too so there are a few different properties few different indicator we can talk about is soil itself like the way soil has been developed it, it matters a lot because okay. we know what kind of properties are there what is the potentiality so we we talk about oh this kid has a potential to do something but unless that key doesn't do that one is not happening so that means one is a potentiality and one is the actual functioning actual happening thing so in terms of soil development we look at if we know the soil type variation then we kind of know based on their characteristic based on their property we can differentiate the soil type or different the soil locations that could help me. What is the potential? And now, in terms of understanding this potential, then we try to dig down in a particular type of soil properties. So, it could be organic matter is definitely an important property to take a look, but soil texture is a, another definitely important property. Plus, in terms of agriculture production, we look at some of the nutrient content or some of this uh, exchange capacity of cations, like how this whole soil could be behaving. So that means if we know organic matter or how compact the soil is and what kind of particles are there could help me understand what is the potential of this particular soil to hold water or hold nutrient and release it for the plant need or plant demand as they as, as they need it mm-hmm. so these are some of the properties. that's why anytime we're talking about this management or developing strategy but again coming down type of soil is there that is determined by the soil properties or the way soil developed from it could be different parent material that is determining different kind of soil texture different organic matter different kind of compacted layers or something like that but nutrient content of course is an important from an immediate point of view that particular growth but in a long term if we really want to see uh, how some of these properties are impacting the soil condition so Organic matter, soil texture, bulk density—that determine the carbonation capacity and the nutrient holding capacity, water holding capacity, and all.
0: Yeah, interesting. I think just you know, from kind of like a front lines agronomy standpoint, I think we can be very guilty of strictly looking at the nutrient contents, regardless of the soil type. Um, you know, I think that I think we can do a better job of taking into account texture like you said bulk density and all those other factors as well and so i think you know i think there's i think i can do a better job of it for sure but i think it's it's a bit daunting you know what i mean (laughs) and so i think that there's a bit of a gap that we need to bridge between the work that you're doing to the work that i'm doing in the field so
1: one of the way I feel like this area, of course, nutrient content is required for an immediate mean. How do we manage that? Because unless you provide enough nutrient, the plant will not grow, it will be underfed. Uh, if uh, if we put too much of it, then we are actually creating all the blue-green algae in Lake Erie or somewhere else. So that means it is very, very important. We look at the nutrient status of it, but this actually tells us that the short term sustainability can it be staying in the business. That's why we require that. But along with that, you still have to have this kind of a little bit of long term view, long term goal. Unless we manage it well, that means we know the total potential and how to reach that. So often we call it about the yield gap. So why that yield gap could be coming in. Unless we know, unless we have a thorough understanding of what is our soil, what is the soil's capability, knowing that uh, quick stamp of the nutrient might not give us the whole picture. Of course, it will help. And this is our traditional way of looking at a fertilizer recommendation. We do or kind of crop support. We can talk about or even the production uh, sometime we predict. Uh, But often I feel like is the soil, which if you have a higher potential soil, so it, it could move on and it could support you for the long term. If you have fundamentally strong, uh, so you can do anything you want to do, but often that without knowing that fundamental and try to take a decision might not be a very wide, like traditionally we do, we get get progress, we get to know our soil like that, but still uh, to me, I think knowing the true potential could help us improving uh, the way we do things
0: yeah yeah for sure absolutely one thing that i always like to ask my guests on the show is just looking at ontario agriculture as a whole you know what's one area that you know we could probably do better at and i i do think that that would be one area for sure but is there anything else that comes to mind um, when you look at agronomy or crop production that you think we could really improve on
1: Um, one of the thing I try to move on even in my research direction to of course that better information about the soil. So is knowing the true potential of our soil will definitely help us moving forward and better manage our land, better manage our soil. So this is kind of, that's the first time I'll tagline that uh, better management requires better measurement and unless the better measurement will give you better information, better information will help you do an informed decision. So that segue you need, so that means better data, better knowing your soil, better knowing the variability of your soil from different corner of your field. Of course, it will be uh, helping you to make a better decision. That's what I feel like knowing your soil, knowing your soil's potential uh, could be like... Because anything you talk about nowadays, we talk about unless we have the data in a medical science without a proper test, not, nobody will write you any, any recommendation to get a medicine or something That's like right. that. So one test after another test after another test, everybody wants to be that assured um, or make sure that, okay, I know what exactly the problem. Why can't you do it for the mm-hmm. soil? So it is giving us food. It is that 95% of our food is coming from soil. So why not we take care of it today? Because if we don't manage our soil for today and for tomorrow, we won't have food to eat. (laughs) So we need to think about, so we need to do our soil, manage it for today and manage it for future. That means manage it for tomorrow. So this is like in my sustainable soil management strategy when I am talking about like, Can you develop this management strategy and in developing the management strategy, how this information could help me? Because I want to make that informed decision. And that's about sensor development, collecting data, quantifying spatial variability, unless we know that in, in moving forward, developing decision, I feel like something missing.
0: For sure for sure. So, and I think, I think we're starting to do a better job, you know, in some situations for sure. And I think the technology is there to help us now. So I think we're definitely headed in the right direction. Um, We're moving
1: very fast. We're moving very fast and everything. Technology (laughs) is growing fast and we are adapting it. I, I can't, I can't say how much. Sometimes it just surprises me. As I said, like farmers or growers are my often they are my main educator to talk to me about culture. And I find how progressive they are. They have been doing an amazing job and in trying to make sure like how their land, how their farm would look like, Um, is so many things to learn from them. So many things to like. They're doing good, and that help us. So when they are doing something and that's working out often is the science not clear and we are much behind and I try to go there and try to understand the science behind it and why it's happening Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, but often they are telling yes it's working it's it's good it's happening maybe science is not clear and that's what we need to do some of the research to understand the science so that this information could help us do even better
0: exactly and you know the farmers have the same goals right they want sustainability at the end of the day i think it's the goal for a lot of them like you said it's you know it is short-term sustainability in terms of running the business today and now but it's also being able to pass that on to the next generation so you know without maybe putting as much thought into it it really is the same goal at the end of the day so just to quickly compare i mean like i said you've in so many other places and in the world and obviously are up to date on research that's being done elsewhere how would you say that ontario measures up in terms of um, sustainability and soil health compared to some other places around the globe
1: i think it's on par we are moving some of the places some specific area might be a little slower but we have the direction we have the eyes on the right direction Uh, so uh, it's not me, it's not you. I think every one of us actually thinking about uh, how to be a better situation, how to have an environment, how to have an agricultural system that have a less impact on environment. Uh, but at the same time, we have to feed everybody out, in all the new mouths are coming forward and just keep increasing. And how do we feed that? So we have, we are in right direction. We are, uh, we are doing as as we're doing all the things possible to do it and some of the places in the global context i would say i have been going to the different conferences different meetings i have different projects in different countries also when you look at that also we are behind we are going forward and that's why i want to make sure all the researchers or everybody uh keep up that canadian standard uh where we are and we want to be on par with everybody in the globe too as well as not only on par, some of the cases we're well ahead of somebody else too. So okay. it's it's a mix, and uh, I think we're doing good.
0: Good. <laughs> well, that is good to hear, and we're very fortunate to have excellent people like you on our team and helping to educate all of us. So um, really appreciate your time today and all the work that you're doing. How can folks um, reach you? You know, if they have any direct questions or want to learn more about the work that you're doing.
1: Uh, definitely um Again, my name is Ashim Biswas. I'm an associate professor with School of Environmental Sciences at the University of Guelph. I have University of Guelph website. Uh, Ashim Biswas could actually help me and Ashim ASIM. Sometimes it's a H, page, but ASIM. Also, I am a little active, not too much, in in Twitter too. Some of the progress we do, I try to get it out to the farmers, uh, getting out to the public so that get to know about what we're doing. Um, through publication, through website, uh, through media, some other places and through Twitter, uh, people can reach out. In addition to that, uh, we are also part of a um, uh, Soil Knowledge Mobilization team called Soils at Guelph. Okay. So it, I'm also part of the team. So it could be, that could be another place uh, people can find me and uh, the website and other information we can always provide. But my name, my email, that uh, could be a nice option to find me as well as some of the show i i try to go i try to attend uh, because those are the places a lot of things for me to learn yes. uh, and i can definitely be available for talking to somebody
0: fantastic well that's awesome so thank you very much and i know you know it takes time to to do things like today and communicate with everyone but um such a good way to share knowledge so i definitely appreciate it
1: no, thank you, Michelle, for having me here. I, I really enjoyed talking to you and uh, some of the things uh, going back to my past and, and my fundamentals. I would say that's to say, when I talk about the sustainability of soil, that I want to know the soil's potential. But of course, every time it takes back me uh, to my original, my base, how I learned soil science, how I learned agriculture.
0: Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. For updates on new episodes, please subscribe, or you can follow me on Twitter at prosperityeggol.